Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's February 2024, and whatever your problem is, your best hope is for Toby Jones to star in an ITV drama about it. We're here to help you get through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson, and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, it is good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into four parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed throughout the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we've made for 2024. We'll shortly be releasing our next instalment, the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Next week we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake Hate Watch. The following week it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at DoubleRealFilm. There's also an Instagram account called DoubleRealPodcast, and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can follow us also on letterbox.com slash Double Real, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Real Podcast on the new social media platforms Blue Sky, Threads, and Mastodon. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Real Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set ourselves in 2024. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Verses is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, we've finally got you a new one, The Adamson's Versus The Dog Poo Detectives is out now. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we've received from listeners. Uh, Tony Friend of the Pod comments on last month's Features episode and says, Interesting show. I used to go to the cinema every week in the early 90s, and the player was one of the best I saw in the period. And yet, I've never felt the need to watch it again since. I also recall my Altman fanboy period was ended by the next film he brought out, Pret-a-Porter. On reflection, I wonder if the whole thing was a Miramax vehicle to get Harvey Weinstein access to supermodels. The chat about Edward reminded me that Samuel L. Jackson was really mean about Martin Landau winning the Oscar. Kind of get why he was angry, but his reaction felt gratuitously unpleasant. Stuart, one of our regulars, commented on our Double Reel Awards episode, uh, which is out now, the uh, third annual Double Reel Awards, if you want to listen back. Uh, Anatomy of a Fall is a film we didn't get around to watching, and Stuart says, it would have to be a contender for Best Film of 2023, you'll love it. And Sandra Huller would, would have got Best Supporting Actress as well as Best Leading Actress for her two performances last year, but she'll likely to be pipped to the Oscar by Lily Gladstone. 
what a year for films. Not just what's on the Oscar list, but what didn't get in as well. I think cinema's in a great place. Some of my favourite films of the year have been because women have been amazing in them. Lily Gladstone, obviously, Kate Blanchett in Tar, and Sandra Huller in Anatty of a Fall and Stone of Interest. We'll be discussing American fiction later in the pod, and Dex says, enjoyed it. Great performance from Jeffrey Wright, although Sterling K. Brown arguably steals the show. It did feel a little like every indie film of the mid-noughties, a man returning to his childhood home and processing trauma, like Garden State, etc., but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Fletcher agrees, very good satire, funny and sharp. Wright and Sterling K. Brown are both excellent. Poor Things is also up this month, and Cluffy says, absolutely uh, superb. The director is up there with the best now. It's so dark and funny. Some of the accents are ridiculous, like Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo, but it still works. Scott says, this was weird and wonderful, and unlike anything else you're likely to see. I loved it. Every department is excellent. Acting, directing, script, costumes, set design, cinematography, all top-notch. However, since it's full of sex, swearing, and some horrible strangeness, I think it will divide audiences. We'll be mentioning The Boy and the Heron later, and DJ says, not vintage Ghibli at all, treads water a bit, no better than a 6 out of 10. Kurt, on the other hand, says, loved it, absolutely stunning animation and wildly imaginative world. I can see why some people have complained about the plot being confusing, but I made sense of it as a reflection of what's going on in the main character's life and imagination. It definitely means something that uh, that so many of the characters in the magical world are birds or things that can fly. I'm just not sure what. Uh, finally, our women directors feature is Selma, which I happen to mention I was unsure of because they didn't have the real MLK speeches for copyright reasons. And George says, I felt the same about the speeches, but I watched it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Joy says, very well made and acted with good production all round. It was an outrageous snub that David Oyelowo wasn't even nominated for his acting. It didn't break any new ground, but it's quality filmmaking. Interesting to compare it to the new film Rustin, which is coming out. Thanks for all your messages. It's great to hear from you. Now on with the pod. The first thing we always look at on Double Room Monthly is the news. So, James, uh, what news stories have caught your interest this month? So it's been a kind of a weird one because as we were sort of recording the last one, we probably could have included the news that we had for the last one for this one because it was obviously the Oscar nominations. That was quite a big one. Uh, yeah, um, that, that, we, that is quite a big. covered that. Yeah, um, we, we, cha- so, we chatted about it a bit on, on the big conversation, but it, it is one of the biggest pieces in news, and it came out sort of two weeks ago, didn't it, as we it record like the now. the awkward time, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about that in a bit more depth, or... Yeah, let's do other that. Other than that, I've not really seen much. Um, yeah. Other than that, there was obviously the Deadpool 3 trailer at the Super Bowl, yeah, which has got a lot of people interested, but yeah, um, the Oscar nominations have obviously been causing a lot of controversy. Um, what what um what con- I mean, are you talking about like uh, snubs, or was there some other con- controversy? Just obviously, obviously the the snubs. People were outraged that you know Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig didn't get nominations. Um, yeah, there's going to be a new award in 2026, I think, called Best Casting. Um, I don't know how prestigious that's going to be seen. Uh, like how, how I think I think I think that, that I think that's going to fall into the category with the um, uh, with the technical awards. I think people have sort of said there are you know when you think how important it is to put a good cast together, you know you you reward costume design and you reward editing, you reward these other things that are important contributions. But I think it'll yeah. it'll fall into that category. If you win best casting, it won't make a year, but it'll be you know it's good for the people who do a good job there to get credit for what they do. It's right? just another thing to say. Oscar winner because then mm-hmm. that film will get probably one Oscar. It'll be that one mm-hmm. because they could have given that Oscar to say, mm-hmm. say Oppenheimer wasn't going to win Best Picture, mm-hmm. but it won Best Casting. Then Oppenheimer could put on all of its uh, posters, mm-hmm. Oscar Academy Award nominee winner, whatever. So it's it's mm-hmm. just another way to spread them about. 
Um, but yeah, obviously the controversies. Um, people felt like the, a lot of the Barbie cast didn't get a nomination. They were pointing out the irony of Ryan Gosling winning, or not winning, sorry, earning a nomination for a uh, for a film about the the patriarchy um, and and the female. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to look at it, I mean, the the director's category is quite strong on the face of it, like for Greta Gerwig, because uh, let's get this up. Um, Anatomy of a Fool's got absolutely rave reviews and for for utter brilliance. So Justin Trier is it's not like a glaringly bad bad one. Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, we both think is good. Christopher Nolan, um, Jonathan Glazer for Zone of Interest. I've got my misgivings about that just because when Jonathan Glazer did Under the Skin, I just found it so impenetrable. You remember we did it for the podcast, and I just thought this is it, it's good, but I've got no fucking idea what's going on, and so I've got my misgivings about that. But everyone is absolutely blown their minds about how good that is and everyone loves poor things by Yorgos Lanthimos so it, the 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 best director it's not like no decent other you know no no other decent director nominations have been had there for Greta Gerwig to miss out I still think it's glaring that she missed out um, we'll maybe come a bit later when I talk about poor things as to maybe Yorgos Lanthimos is a little bit lucky to get a nomination there um, but I do think on best actress right just Carrie Mulligan just have to turn up to get an Oscar nomination now no offence to her, because I think she's really good, right? But Maestro has got this kind of mediocre reaction. But because everyone, because it's just such utter Oscar bait and has campaigned its arse off, it's had lots of nominations. And I really don't, I really feel like Kerry Mulligan for Maestro is a, it's a bit of a um, superfluous like nomination. I've got no idea what Annette Benning and Nyad was like, so I can't comment, right? But Kerry Mulligan is just like really... It's the girlfriend role in the Bradley Cooper film, and that's ahead of Barbie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to pick on Kerry Mulligan. I think yeah, I know, what I, know, I find yeah. outrageous is that Maestro is getting any nominations because it's not actually, I don't think many people have actually seen it. Do you know what I mean? Like, everyone's seen Oppenheimer, everyone's seen Barbie, a lot of people have seen Killers of the Flower Moon. Those are the three big films that people have seen. And then you can start, you know, drifting into the. Um, the other ones like Napoleon's got a few nominations and um, Super Mario Bros. Everyone saw that, and same with um, Spider Man. So there's films that have seen that people have seen and appreciated, but I've not seen Maestro. I probably won't watch Maestro because it's not my thing. It didn't get rave reviews, and I just think the the kind of whole production of it is just really it makes me cringe. Learning like going to uh, going to a conductor's training kind of course intensively for like however many years he did it putting on the prosthetic nose for like i, I don't want to be it's, a dick it's, but it's nobody just, cares about this character it's just Not in a it's bad way. just i mean the thing is leonard bernstein i mean for americans right and for people of a certain generation he is one of the greatest musical composers of all time and if he also had an interesting life right terrific i mean the thing is bernie torpin's musical achievements are are, are in many ways very impressive he's one of the best lyricists of all time and um, it sold a huge amount of records, but he didn't get his own movie because he's a quiet fella, you know. He was a guy like he was. Elton John was obviously the big flamboyant, outrageous, who, who had all, who had all sorts of personal problems and all sorts of that stuff, right? Was Johnny so, and just said, "Here you go, Elton," and then collected. His I've, written, and went I've home. written some good lyrics, and he's yeah. good, and, and good luck to him. But he he doesn't get his own movie, and if Leonard Bernstein had a fascinating life in some way, sure. But you know the. 
it the whole thing feels like a war station by Bradley Cooper, and the whole thing has been you know pre-tooled like that. Netflix throws a lot of money behind its Oscar nomination campaigns, and it's just like you look. It's I mean it's available to watch on Netflix now for free, and I haven't really been that bothered to watch it. And you know the IMDb rating six point six, which is probably fine, and yet you know come on guys. I do. I do feel like Maestro is there because it's it. It was purpose built from the very very beginning to get nominations for awards and for no other reason. There's always one. There's, 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 there's always one. There's always one film like that. Yeah, I mean, I can't comment on whether it's as you know bad as American Hustle. Um, but yeah, that's um, Maestro is. You know, we maybe we'll maybe we'll do this one of these days, right? And we can talk. We can ch- talk about this a bit a bit longer when we we'll probably do Oscar chat when the actual awards are given That'll out. That would be our big conversation. Yeah, yeah. and um, we can talk about this. But someone said something really interesting. I think it was another podcast I was listening to that they should reaward the Oscars ten years later and see what films have stood the test of time. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's an, you know, I think it's it's something for us to chat through when you know when we're doing the Oscars in, in more detail. But I do think Maestro is going to be a film that no one is talking about in in a couple of years, and because who's talking about American Hustle now? It's like nope. It's just gone from the conversation. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that that's that's it. I mean, in terms of other nominations that you've got there, I mean, the, the best actress, you know, I think Lily Gladstone is is probably leading that. Emma Stone is has got a lot of support for a very strong performance in Poor Things. Otherwise, Oppenheimer looks like it's got a lot of its categories sewn up. I think it, um, uh, the, the Directors Guild or the, I think it's the Directors Guild of America just gave their annual award to uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, which is a usually a strong indicator of who's going to win the director Oscar. I think that's going to sweep. You know, you know, you've you've mentioned this before in the Oscars that in recent years they've sort of shared them out a little bit, and I feel like Oscars is uh, feel like Oscars is going to be dominated by one one film a little bit this year. But we'll yeah, see. I mean, usually when Nolan makes a film, it gets the um, special effects award as well, but this one won't get it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it, it just won't. So it might be a kind of shift in that sense that the mm-hmm. more of the technical ones go to say Napoleon for sound editing or costume, and then you know the kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, it's going to get best score. Well, I'd I'd be very surprised if it didn't get best score. Um, but it'll probably win best actor, best director, maybe best picture. I, th- I think it's a strong contender for best picture. Actor, yeah. it, w- it won't get best supporting actress. Um, I was going to touch on the Lily Gladstone thing. Now that I've seen Killers of the Flower Moon, have mm-hmm. we spoken about that? How I've seen it? I've watched quite a few films. Um, we talked about it on the big conversation because she was among our actress nominees, but we haven't talked about it on this one. So yeah, right. So we'll we'll get into that a little bit, but I just wanted to touch on the the Lily Gladstone nomination. I thought for a three and a half hour film, she does just spend a lot of the film being diabetic and having opiates in her system. Mm-hmm. Now that's not me criticising her because that's obviously Martin Scorsese's choice. But the best bits about Lily Lily Gladstone's performance are when she's actually, you know. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but she goes to speak to the president. She mm-hmm. goes to speak to Herbert Hoover and when she's actually doing things. But there's a large portion of this film where she is just in bed and unwell. And I yeah. thought that was very bizarre. I found it like, obviously you've got to make the point that she's getting poisoned. But in terms of like a leading performance, 
she does just sit sweating her fucking arsehole in a bed. That that's yeah. what I it's what yeah, I yeah, look, I mean look, we you know, we we yeah, we we sort of arrived at giving her our best actress award. Um and I think I think her performance is very impressive because she manages to hold everybody's attention and, and in many ways carry the film. But I do, I do think it's interesting that I think it's the wider problem that we always seem to see films about Native Americans suffering and not really doing and not really being able to do very much about it. And and, and I and I don't and I I don't think that's and I don't think that's the fault of the Native Americans themselves. I think it's this this that Hollywood finds it very hard not to just portray them as unlucky victims. Do you know what I mean? Of, just just suffering. Happened, yeah. And they did suffer a huge amount, but I think you know it it from a storyline point of view, you want to see people trying to do something about their situation. That's literally what every film should be, you know. So I, I get what you're saying. Well, I, it's and her performance is still very strong in in parts because she still has to play the role of she doesn't really know what's going on, um, and she conveys her grief very well. Mm-hmm. But she like it's almost like she benefited from the fact that the film is three and a half hours long, so she still has the opportunity to act. I just. Yeah, yeah, I, think, I, I, yeah, I, know, from, I know exactly what you from mean. From the director and all the editors to just leave in so many scenes of her just lying in bed, bedridden, as opposed to the amount of work she did do to campaign, you know, against everything that was going on with, you know, the FBI to the president to the, you know, to everyone. Um, I feel like they did, they did kind of miss a trick of that. So, and and, and that's think, that's why I think my my thoughts on Killers of the Flower, Flower Moon were as good as it was. I don't mind a film that's three and a half hours long, but that was a three and a half hour film of which a good hour was just just, just watching while somebody suffers rather than actually moving the story on, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an indication of the kind of the strength of the the leading actress films this year. I've mm-hmm. not been totally blown away and I still think Lily Gladstone's performance was the best performance of the year, but if that film had been two hours and 20 minutes long and they still had that hour of her in bed, she probably wouldn't be anywhere in the other nominations. Yeah, it's just, yeah. There's an extra hour on top of that where she gets to actually. Because, know, but yeah, I, I know things. what you mean. I, I, I do, I do hear very good things about Sandra Huller, and I have, I do think Emma Stone was absolutely superb in Poor Things. We'll come to like my thoughts on the whole film overall. Emma Stone's performance is really, really very good. Um, so, you know, S- Sandra Huller. In Anatomy of Fall, I can't comment on, so we'll just have to see what you know what, what that's actually like. But it's that's getting rave reviews for its sheer brilliance. So I think if you take Lily Gladstone, Sandra Huller, and Emma Stone, you've got three strong nominees. I, but Margot Robbie should be on there. I don't, I don't honestly, I don't fucking care how good Nyad is. Margot Robbie should have been nominated for Best Actress this year. It's fucking ridiculous that she wasn't. It's it's interesting that Ryan Gosling got him a, no- a nomination because of. His performance is very comedic. It is. It's an entirely yeah. comedic performance, and Margot Robbie does a, a, a similar performance. Obviously, Ryan Gosling does steal the show, and I don't know if that's ironic because it's a film about you know the patriarchy and the matriarchy and all that kind of stuff, or if it's just because Ryan Gosling stole the show and was brilliant. But Margot Robbie still hits every joke that she's meant to, you know, try yeah. and land. And it, yeah, it, I understand why because. She, I think maybe she was overshadowed a little bit. I think we said this in the conversa- big conversation that it wasn't like an exceptional performance. Um, but when you just look at the strength of the other nominations, it's a bit, yeah, yeah. 
I think in in the supporting actor and actress categories, they they always they always just seem to have a bit more freedom as to who they'll nominate. So different kinds of performance get a nomination, but your your support your your leading actor and actress nominations they always skew towards more serious type performances. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll come to poor things because that is actually very comedic as a film, but it's comedic in a very dark way. So uh, you know you. you if you see poor things, you'll see why that gets you know more attention than say something like Barbie. But there you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, American fiction has got some nominations. We'll be talking about that later about about how that goes. And and obviously the big, um, the big um, snub that you were especially uh, uh, annoyed about was uh, Jack Black not getting a nomination in Best Original Song for the Peaches song from uh, Super Mario Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, movie. I mean. It's what's annoying me is that the Billie Eilish song is going to win. It's not the best song of the year. What it is is it's the song to the best montage of the year, mm-hmm. and that's why it's getting all the nominations. That song is pretty boring, and it's kind of like a whining, droning song in a kind of high pitched tone. But because it's a kind of montage of all of you know, um, like it's a, it's a montage of like all these different women from all these different walks of life and it's meant to be like a kind of heartfelt, tear-jerking moment and everyone's going, oh, that's the best song of the year. It's not the best song in fucking Barbie. Hmm. Yeah. And it's not better than Peaches. So... Yeah, there you go. But they don't have a sense of humour at the Academy, so... Yeah. There you go. Uh, but yeah, we'll see more about the Oscars, I guess, in a, in about a month's time. It's March, isn't it? And that's probably going to be our March big conversation in, in issue 47 of our magazine podcast. Um... Any other news stories? I've got a couple. That It's been a quiet month, but I do have a couple of things. I saw that Carl Weathers passed away, which was sad. That was sad, yeah. I mean, he will always be most famous for playing Apollo Creed in the Rocky films. Um, he, yeah, I mean, he absolutely lit up the screen in that. I mean, he, even playing Ali is hard enough, you know, but, you know, playing a character that's obviously meant to be based on Ali is still pretty tall order. And he just... You know, from from day one, he was an incredibly charismatic guy. He had a few other things, you know, that I remember watching when I was a kid, Force 10 from Navarone. He's obviously got an, a memorable role in Predator. He's in a, one of the Adam Sandler films. Is it Happy Gilmore? Something like He's that. He's brilliant in Happy Gilmore. Too. Yeah. And he recently had, um, you know, a, a nice part in uh, The Mandalorian. So he's he's been busy. Um, I guess he'll always be Apollo Creed, won't he? Yeah. Um, I, I've got a couple here. There's a. There's been an announcement that um, after after the Judge Dredd film that we watched, there's always been some speculation about are we going to get any more Judge Dredd films? Because while Judge Dredd didn't do great at the box office, that was generally regarded as a poor bit of marketing by the studio. It went on to do very well on Blu-ray, and there is a demand and some discussion of a a TV series based on Mega City One, the urban setting for Judge Dredd. There's also going to be another film based on a character from the Source magazine that Judge Dredd's from, 2000 AD, a film called Rogue Trooper, which is about a uh, a, a kind of uh, super soldier who's been like genetically, you know, r- risen to be a um, soldier, but he's a bit mad. He's got voices in his head. It's one of these darkly satirical sci-fi things, very violent, very funny. People of my age love Rogue Trooper. Um, I don't know what you know, I don't know what his pedigree is with modern audiences, but it's going to be directed by Duncan Jones, who has a, an interesting 
pedigree in sci-fi. I mean, Warcraft was a bit of a bit of a shambles, but he did do Source Code, which was good, and Moon, which was great. So it'll be interesting to see how he pulls that one on. That's a 2025 release. I'm not sure you'd even heard of Rogue Trooper, mate. Uh, no. Yeah, I mean, it's it's from, you know, 2018, started out in the late 70s and was like a big thing in the 80s. Um, but, I mean, it's a very sort of, very niche, very punky type thing, which doesn't have a, a lot of history. But I guess that, that generation of people still goes out and watches films. And I think connected to Judge Dredd, and a, there's a bit of impetus for the Mega City 1 TV series, which got hit by COVID. We'll see if that happens now. Um, we might be getting a bit of a Judge Dredd universe and maybe more Judge Dredd content, which I'd be very happy to see. So that's that. Um, there's also some information about the new Paul Thomas Anderson film. I don't know if you saw this. No, I didn't know. So he's he's going to be making a new film called Vineland, uh, which is it's another adaptation. He already did one. He had adapted the um, uh, Inherent Vice by Philip... Is it Philip Roth or Thomas Pinchon? I have to remember that. Um yeah, Thomas Pinchon, not Philip Roth. Yeah, Thomas Pinchon, Inherent Vice, which, while that was a difficult novel to film, it was um, seen as his one of his more accessible novels. Thomas Pinchon wrote another book called Vineland, which is set in the in the 70s or the 80s. Um, it's supposed to be unfilmable, but Paul Thomas Anderson's decided to have a crack at it, and Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be starring in it, and they're already filming. That's got a... a, a uh, 2025 estimated well it hasn't got an estimated filming date but if you look at his last film when he filmed it when it when it came out if he's filming it now it's going to come out in 20 in 2025 um he maybe they'll sneak it in this year maybe last time was slowed up by covid um but leonardo dicaprio he gets films made right and he gets films watched so that's going to be interesting to see interesting i know you're not pto's biggest fan but i do know you're you're a dicaprio fan right so yeah, I'll, I'll reserve my judgment. Yeah. Yeah. So he's updated it to the modern day, which is, as I think, one of the more notable things about this, because Paul Thomas Anderson does love a period setting. So many of his films have been set in, in you know, previous uh, eras, especially the 70s, but this is going to be up to date. So we'll see. Um, but it's been a quiet month for news. I really don't have anything else. So unless you've got anything else, mate, that's probably us for the news. Yeah, that, I think that is us. The next thing we tend to talk about is uh, new releases, new films that are coming out soon. Has anything caught your eye? Well, obviously, Deadpool 3, uh, the trailer of Super Bowl uh, over the weekend. Yeah, when's, when's, when's that actually coming out? I don't actually know when that's coming out, but I did see the trailer for it. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that is big. Um, let me just see. Deadpool 3 release date. Man looks things up on the internet. UK release date, because obviously the majority of our audience... 26th of July, 2024. Okay, so yeah, that, that that's a while away, but obviously it is a bit of discussion. I mean, what did you think of Deadpool 2 compared to Deadpool 1? Uh, it was pretty good. Still pretty strong. Yeah? Um, I think and they they've, and, well. they've, and they've left it a few years before they do another one. That's usually a, a sign that they've waited until they got a story, right? Yeah, I mean, Deadpool... Um, was obviously a really strong film to start with suffered with budget problems and they kind of had to work with what they had and then they kind of were they had a bit more freedom to kind of tell a, a more kind of fleshed out story with cable yeah so i'm thinking for this one it'll be uh it'll be even more kind of 
fleshed out. They've got Wolverine this time. Um, yeah, I thought the the first. It's, a, one was... it's actually billed on IMDb as Deadpool and Wolverine rather than being actually Deadpool three. Interesting. I know it's going to have um, a few couple of cast members from the Loki TV show, which is interesting. So they're actually bringing it into. Um, I think Deadpool three was a Fox release, wasn't it? And now Fox is twentieth century. You know, they've got rid of the Fox label. They bought it. It's twentieth century studios. That's owned by Disney. So I think that's actually bringing um, uh, Deadpool fully back into the MCU, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it's unconfirmed, and but I'm not entirely sure if they're definitely going to be in it. But it'd be very interesting if they did bring it into the. Uh the MCU, but I, I don't know. They might not. The thing that's the thing that's of interest for me a little bit, not to not to go all woke on everybody, but I thought the one disappointing thing about the the, the Deadpool was that the Vanessa character, Marina Baccarin's character, originally in the comics, she is a powered character. She's actually a mutant superhero called Copycat, and they had budget problems. They wanted to get the Deadpool character off the ground. Fine, fair enough. What that meant was that she was relegated to a girlfriend role, and she was very good. She's very funny. They do they do, do do some stuff with it. But then when the story gets going and the action happens, she's off to the side because she's not actually a hero character. Um, well, you know, hero, you know, powered character. Um, they are teasing that she might actually become a mutant and actually become a the 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 full the full blown character that she's meant to be in Marvel in this one. So that will be quite good if they do that. That'd be interesting, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, other than that, in terms of new releases, this is a little bit before. Th- this will be out by the time this episode lands, February twenty third. There's a British film called Wicked Little Letters. Um, it's a British period comedy. It may be relatively small scale, but it's based on a really interesting true story about a posh small town uh, in the, I think, the fifties. It looks like that was absolutely up in arms because everyone starts receiving these unbelievably rude hate mail in the post, and they blame the recently moved in Irish immigrant for it, and the whole town sort of starts to uh, get wound up. It's played up as a comedy, but with some sort of, sort of serious elements. Terrific cast. This is the sort of thing British you get in British comedies where it's a. it might not be the biggest film, but they get like everybody is in it. So Jess, Jesse Buckley, Olivia Colman, Timothy Spall, Lolly Adifopi from Ghosts, Jason Watkins, who you recognise if you saw him, Joanna Scanlon likewise, Hugh Skinner, who you may have seen in The Witcher. So... I saw the trailer for it. It looks all right, actually. That might be in that very British film. You might be able to wait for it to come on telly type way. But I think that is, if you're if you fancy something that's a bit of an alternative, and the fact that it's a bit of a quiet month, um, that's worth a look. Um, March the first, June part two comes out. Now I remember you saying June two looks better. You found June one a bit boring, but what did you? you the the trailer for June part two does look quite lively, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the first one, it got all these crazy positive reviews, but I don't know if that's just because the first June film was such a mess. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I know my colours master. I loved it, but I do think there's an element of hated the first film, liked the book, was really grateful to see someone do a good job of the story, so maybe I'm biased, you know? Yeah, I mean, it did seem like there was a lot of story kind of introduction and introducing all these new kind of characters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, June part two. Also, the, all the build up to to set up the scenario uh, is uh, um, 
has done in the first film and now you've got a lot there is going to be a lot more action you've basically got the guerrilla warfare of uh timothy chalamet's kind of uh, uh army you've got some very interesting stuff you see in the trailer about he starts to have visions about how what he's doing could spark uh, a, a galactic war that leads to millions of deaths it's actually quite a provocative message because this was written in the 60s and it was basically a sci-fi version of lawrence arabia and the idea of like the you know what basically what what's their version of the american and western foreign powers exploiting like a desert area for like you know oil basically being the bad guys and the uh, the fanatical you know tribes uh, uh with with mystical or religious kind of uh faith being the good guys leading a guerrilla war against them that's incredible i mean that reads very provocatively now when you think about the you know wars that we've had in afghanistan and iraq so it's interesting to see it played that way and to have that kind of conflict where the leader of the uh, of you know the hero of the story is worried that he's going to spark off millions of deaths um i think there's some interesting stuff going to happen in that um lots of josh brolin who is always good so you know fingers crossed that's sort of the big and that's march the first so that's that's not long that's that's during you know that's Sort of the first big sort of blockbuster of the year, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it must be. Although, Madame although, Webb's although Madame Webb's out, I don't know if that. I don't. No, even, I don't. I, I don't, I don't even that. know if that's a blockbuster. So we'll see. I'm. I've, no, I'm booked. I'm booked. Going to be terrible. I'm booked in to see it. Um, because you know, I'm. You know, I, I booked in to see it kind of because I'm. I'm a fan of the Spider Woman original character, even though it hasn't got Jessica Drew in it. I'm not like deep into Marvel, but I do remember liking Spider-Woman comics when I was a kid because she's quite a cool, like, she's just a little bit, she's she's a little bit darker and a little bit more dangerous than Spider-Man. So, it, but these are the people who wrote the Morbius script. So, I don't know. It's going to be awful. Um, March the 15th. There's really not a lot coming out this month, by the way. I mean, you know, ch- ch- chime in if I go past anything that you see coming out. But the, the March 15th is from called Drive Away Dolls. Um, it's Ethan Cohen without his brother Joel writing and directing a female road movie crime comedy. Uh, the tra- I, I honestly don't know if this is going to be any good. I've kind of fallen out of love with the Cohen brothers, but the trailer did look good. Um, and it's sort of like, it starts out like it's going to be of a Thelma and Louise, but they basically fall foul of gangsters and it turns into sort of a, a road, sort of violent road comedy from place to place. It, it looks it, it looks fun, but we'll see. Um, in March the 22nd, I, I've, I've put this on just because it sounds really weird. It's Mark Wahlberg, Arthur the King. Uh, Mark Wahlberg in a true story about a cyclist on an epic endurance race who uh, encounters a stray dog and takes it, takes it, with him on his journey across America on his bike, uh, and it's oh, and it's based yeah. on a true story. I don't. Mark, Mark Wahlberg has these kind of. He'll do some. He'll do some. He likes. He obviously likes working with Will Ferrell, so he does a bit of Will Ferrell type comedy. He does other other films that are good if the the right script and the right property comes along, like The Fighter. He's done some good stuff. He'll do like an action franchise, and then he does these these odd films where I don't know if he's trying to portray himself as some kind of crusading hero there's that one about the priest or whatever it's a very odd little strain of films that he does where he seems to be playing these like weird off to the side characters i I don't hey maybe it'll be a classic i don't know but it just looks really weird um and the other one which again that the main reason i mentioned this is getting wildly mixed reviews this is getting terrible reviews by some people and very good reviews by others so it's very much going to be about whether you like the main premise it's called the American Society of Magical Negroes. Have you heard about this? 
No. I saw a trailer for this when I went to see American Fiction. You know how they kind of lump, if you're watching one film, they think, oh, this is the same character, yeah. so watch this. And it's kind of like a fantasy satire. Because have you heard of the phrase magical Negro? No. Right, this is like... In, the, the, the best example of it, the most ultimate example of it, is The Legend of Bag of Vance, where Will Smith plays some sort of slightly magical character who's only there to help Matt Damon with his golf swing. But it's the idea of these black characters who show up in, in, in American films and their only purpose is... They're like, they're like the manic pixie dream girl who's only there to kind of help the, the, the main male character with his kind of journey. The magical Negro is there just to help the, 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 the story of the white people along in the movie. Right. And this this film takes that idea and imagines that there is a mag- an actual magical society of black people whose job it is to um, support and help uh, white people and make them more comfortable and everything else. And and the satirical element of it is the more comfortable and relaxed and 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 uh, easygoing white people are, and the easier their life is, the better it is for black people. And it's kind of satirizing this whole thing and. It's got some people I like in it, like David Alan Greer, but it's getting wildly mixed reviews. Like, eesh, um, it's either going to go really well or really badly, depending on what you think. Um, right. But uh, it's just such an odd, an odd idea. So I, I, I will sort of keep an eye out for how that goes. It's the sort of thing that could really sort of go badly. But uh, uh, is anything else you know that I've missed on that list that, that you've got coming out that you're no, interested in? No, I don't in? think so. I think you've uh, you've skimmed the entirety of the internet to try and find out all the new releases it's there. It's very, very, very... It's a very quiet month. Very, very quiet indeed. But, uh, but there we are. Not a lot coming out. It's probably an opportunity to, if you see something... That's a little bit more interesting. That's why that's why I mentioned Wicked Little Letters. That might actually be, you know what? It's a bit of a quiet month. That looks all right. Maybe maybe don't wait for it to come out on telly this time. Just just see see about that one. But no, slim pickings is what I'd say. Okay, now we come to uh, the new films section of Double Monthly, where we talk about the new, newish, and notable films we've watched since we last did Double Room Monthly. So, James, uh, do, do you want me to go first while you like uh, consult your list, or have you got something on, on your mind that you wanted uh, to discuss yeah, you first? You go first, and then I can kind of consolidate them a little bit better. I have watched quite a few this month. I've okay. got a bit of a bit of a role so okay well let's uh, let's go through it so the first sort of film i went to see at the cinema since our last uh, episode it's a 2023 film it, it, i mean it it, it was re- it was out relatively recently i think it's recent recent enough to be discussed i mentioned it on uh on the big conversation we were talking about the awards because it was nominated for one of our nominations for best animated it's in the oscar nominations for best animated it's uh miyazaki's uh presumably final film the boy in the heron um, the latest Studio Ghibli. Um, now, I really, I really love this. Uh, as I mentioned on on the on the, uh, the the awards, we we ended up giving across the Spider Verse um, the the Oscar, and I think that's because it's got to be consensus. We both watched and loved across the Spider Verse, and you you hadn't seen the Boy in the Heron, and you know across the Spider Verse really did hit, did you know did hit in in, in all in all ways. Um, but I really did like this. It's, the story is about, it's set during World War II, and it's kind of semi-autobiographical, but only kind of. Um, 
uh, Miyazaki's like looked back sort of at his his life and kind of used one or two incidents to kind of create this uh, idea. It's about a boy whose mother. It's in World War Two, Japan. A boy, uh, a boy's mother dies in a bombing raid, and he's evacuated with his father to somewhere sort of much more remote in you know away from the cities in um, in Japan. His father works making sort of uh, fighter planes for the Japanese military. Uh, they're basically uh, they're in the, the the old family country house that his ancestors have always lived in. It's miles from anywhere. He encounters a heron who is actually a magical creature who keeps sort of pestering him and chasing him around. And he he follows the heron into a, a parallel world, a magical world, which one of the old buildings built by his ancestors is actually a gateway to that world. And it's a strange, weird sort of world where lots of various flying creatures, the world seems to be sort of fraying around the edges and dying a little bit. Um, it's, it's dangerous. He encounters all sorts of different characters. And it's kind of... Um, there's kind of a couple of things I have in there. I think Miyazaki seems sort of looking back on his own life and career a little bit because you can see imagery and ideas from films like Spirited Away and Hell's Moving Castle in here. Not the same, but for example, there's a number of like old women. And you know those the old women characters in Spirited Away, they've got those bulbous noses. Uh, they look like that. There's some the the the, the there is similarities. It, I don't think he's repeating himself, but I think he's sort of he's almost like re-examining the the magical worlds that he created in those other films and kind of sort of almost like ruminating on what it all means. Um, but the real emotion reaction is about about the little the boy. He's, he's a young boy. He's lost his mum. He's trying to make sense of the world. He's grieving. He doesn't really know how to. His father's too busy building warplanes. His dad doesn't kind of. His dad's actually done his best for him. The dad's married again. He's married his his dead wife's sister, and she's the she the new wife is really nice to him, really looks after him. But the boy's just struggling. He's traumatized, and you know I think culturally, just no one knows how to talk to a boy who's lost his mum, kind of thing. And he retreat. It's not that in the story he stumbles into this magical world but you feel like maybe he's retreated into this world and it's his way of trying to make sense of everything that's going on with the war and his life and he you know his dad's building war planes and he's probably not very comfortable with that and there's all sorts of stuff going on i really loved it It was really good it was really emotionally affecting it's not up there with Hal's moving castle and especially spirited away his best film is still spirited away that's an absolute masterpiece but i think it does a lot it talks a lot about childhood and grieving and, and it, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at um it creates as while it does reference some of his early work it does create some amazing new worlds as well i think it's worth a watch i know anime is not really your thing it style gives you a bit of a headache but this is this was a good film to watch i, I did like that um has that given you enough time for you to start pulling together your list or should i should yeah I yeah i've on? got i've got a few so i watched a bunch of films um yeah. just to kind of just kind of pass some time, sort of this month, you know, before work, after work, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I watched uh, the new Aquaman film. Oh, what was that like? Terrible piece of shit. Not, um, not entirely nothing, surprised. No, no, nothing needs to be said more apart from that. Needs to be the last thing from the DC uh, universe. Um, are you, are you, are you, do you not even want to see what James Gunn does with the new films? Or no, I mean just from that kind of. So after the embarrassment that was Aquaman, I don't want to give it any time. I don't want to say what's good or bad about it because there's nothing good and everything's bad about it. Yeah. Um, I saw Wonka. Yeah, what do you think? So it suffered from the same problems that The Hunger Games 
a ballad of songbirds and snakes. Yeah. Suffered with, like, I found the singing in it quite cringy. Uh-huh. But the the story was really good. I really enjoyed the kind of daftness of the story. The story had a real kind of Paddington vibe, but the kind of singing was a little bit... Oh, uh, for fuck's sake. It wasn't I- terrible. And the songs were... Like, some of the songs were okay. It just kind of felt like... Do you, think, know, just, do you think maybe the songs were because they wanted to be tied more to the Gene Wilder Wonka stories and, and less to the Johnny Depp ones? Maybe. Um, Not that there's a huge amount of singing in that one, but Gene Wilder does famously sing that Come With Me song and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so it was it was, it was, was good. It was an interesting kind of prequel story and like seeing the kind of enthusiastic chocolate maker that he yeah. starts as and then kind of contrasting that to what he ends up becoming is uh, it was a nice kind of contrast which was good it was a good film I really enjoyed it um, just some of the songs for me were a little bit cringy and I think we discussed Napoleon on the last one so I've already discussed that but yeah on on the big conversation you you, you said look that you, you there are people who were on board with what, what Ridley Scott did with Napoleon and there were people that weren't because Napoleon is a Sort of such a multifaceted figure that someone could make a Napoleon film that's got none of the things you want from it, and it will irritate you that it's put all this stuff in that you don't want to watch instead of the stuff that you did. Basically, do you know what I mean? And there's so many interpretations of Napoleon, you just didn't chime with it at all, did you? Yeah, it just wasn't for me. Um, I also watched the what did I watch? I watched the Suicide Squad again, the James Gunn version, which was as good as always. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think. Did I watch anything on that? I don't know. I feel like I watched. I watched more, didn't I? Well, shall I do? Shall I do a couple more? And if anything else springs to mind, you can jump in. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. So after the boy with the heron, I went to the cinema to watch Poor Things. Now, the interesting thing about like Yorgos Lanthimos is that his some of his previous films, like The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer, they seemed so random and sort of strange to me. That I, I was worried, you know these European art house films where people absolutely rant and rave about how amazing they are and you just think, I don't know if that's for me, I'll watch, at some point I'll watch one and see if I like them, that kind of thing. Then The Favourite came out with Olivia Colman, it got lots of awards buzz, which is why the Oscars I think have a purpose because, you know, you shouldn't say, oh it's been nominated for an Oscar, I'll watch it, but the fact is there are types of films where you go, that could be Total Emperor's New Clothes. I'm, I'm uncertain about watching it. But The Favourite just immediately struck me with a terrific cast and a great idea. You know, it. I just thought, yeah, I'll give that a go. And it was brilliant. And it was still strange in the Yorgos Lanthimos way, but it was a bit more accessible. Not because I think he made it any more accessible, but because he was having to tell the story of Queen Anne and the royal court and some stuff that was going on there that I had a reference point so that when it got weird, I could stay on board. Do you know what I mean? So that I could stay with it. And I really loved the, the favourite. So when his new film came out and everyone was talking about how good it was, I thought, well, I'll go and watch this as well. Now, this is based on a novel by a Scottish writer called Alice de Grey. They moved the initial setting from Edinburgh to London, which I can see why they've done it, but I think it does miss out some like classic like 19th century Edinburgh atmosphere that they could have had. Um, it also would have linked it a little bit more closely to some of its source material reference inspirations. It's kind of a flip side to Frankenstein, where a mad scientist played by Willem Dafoe reanimates a dead woman, Emma Stone. Um, 
And then as she develops her own new consciousness, she goes off and has her own adventures and escapades, like mainly sexual. Now, the style of it is kind of slightly steampunk. I think it rather than like, I think it's probably, they didn't have the money to fully recreate 19th century Lisbon, uh, Paris, London, and all of these places. And they thought what would be really interesting if they build these slightly fantastical sets that give you the atmosphere of those places, but make it look really strange and different. That's very on brand for Yorgos Lanthimos. And it looks amazing. It looks really, really interesting. And it's got, you know, a strange looking cruise ship. It's got all sorts of weird stuff going on and it looks great. Um, I don't think this is a spoiler because they tell you quite early on that Emma Stone's character killed herself in sort of tragic circumstances, threw herself off a bridge. Willem Dafoe rescues her and the the dead woman is pregnant and he that he manages to reanimate her using the brain of her unborn child right which is so fucking mad and horrific that for about there's probably 5 minutes of stuff in the film that I don't even remember seeing because I just spent 5 minutes being absolutely what the fuck about that plot revelation um, cause that is fucking dark. Do you know what I mean? That is so strange and weird. Um, Emma Stone plays a literally a brilliant physical performance first and foremost, because she's learning to walk on her legs and everything, but she's an adult and it's very brilliant physical performance. Very funny, very well done character. She goes off on these adventures because she's essentially seduced by Mark Ruffalo's character, even though the young kind of doctor who sort of assists Willem Dafoe, is interested in her as well and, and and they have a relationship but then she just gets because she, she doesn't know any of the social morals of the day so she just goes oh well all right we said we were going to marry and we've had a bit of sex but i'll go off and have sex with someone else why shouldn't i why shouldn't i go off on these adventures and obviously that's morally outrageous in 19th century but she doesn't care because she's got none of that baggage for 45 minutes i thought this film was absolutely brilliant and then i thought it sort of started to meander and lose its way I don't, th given the the scenario that she gets to go off and do whatever she wants because she's different to the rest of society, I don't think anything she does is all that interesting. She has this affair on a cruise ship and goes to Lisbon with Mark Ruffalo and then she goes to Paris and she does these things. I just didn't, I thought, I felt it was a little bit lacking in kind of invention in the story once they got that going. And then it has this weird plot twist at the end that no that no, uh, that contains nothing that was mentioned or or, or or and you think oh where the fuck did that come from? So as as brilliantly done as it is, I did feel like it just dropped off a little bit, and I I would think it an injustice if this won Best Picture. I don't think it's that strong. I do. I still like Yorgos Lanthimos. I love the style of the film. I just don't think, and maybe that's what's in the original book. Maybe he's just sticking to what's in the book. I don't know, but it, I, I think it just it set up this brilliant idea and then wasn't as interesting as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't as wasn't as inventive and didn't go off in the kind of di in interesting directions I thought it would when it started. It was it you know beautifully shot, great sets and costumes. Emma Stone is absolutely brilliant. I think she's going to win Best Actress because she's fucking incredible and. I don't think that actually I don't know maybe Lily Gladstone will win but it's I think it's it's a toss up between those two I forgot about Lily Gladstone for a second maybe Lily Gladstone's going but it's between those two to win best actress um 
I think it fails to deal with the fact that for large parts of the story, she's been sexually exploited because she's got the mind of a child. And I think a lot of people have been very uncomfortable with that part of the story. Um, and I, it doesn't really deal with the fact that the scientific experiments that these doctors are doing are absolutely immoral. And maybe that's part of the, um, uh, maybe that's part of the, uh, the satirical tone of the piece. But yeah, it didn't, it didn't quite work for me. Um, although it's got some absolutely brilliant stuff in and Mark Ruffalo's accent is shite. I don't know if that was on purpose, but he can't do an English accent and it's really distracting. And I don't know why he's been nominated for best sport actor. And I love Mark Ruffalo and I think he's a really good actor, but his accent should disqualify him because it's fucking dog shit. So that's what I thought of poor things. Did that give you, <laughs> no, did that give you enough time to, um, yeah, I thought I'd watched way more, but I I don't think I actually had. Um, oh, but those are the two I watched, and then on top of like, um, um, yeah, well, that's there's some new films in there, like around Monk yeah. and Napoleon. They're they're all new. Um, what else did I? Yeah, the the other one that I that I went to at the cinema was uh, American Fiction. Now you you pointed this film out to me. You said you're going you you. you described this film and told me that it would be right up my street and you're absolutely right it's completely up my street the, the basic premise is Jeffrey Wright is this sort of upper middle class writer of intelligent fiction and books about Greek mythology uh, he comes from a family of high achieving doctors and intellectuals um, he writes the sort of books that everybody loves but don't make a huge amount of money so he he, he, get, he has a, a full-time job as a professor of literature to university, that 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 kind of lifestyle, and he's frustrated by the fact that like people, his his books get pigeonholed as black fiction when he just thinks it's quality literary fiction and 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 and, and books about you know books about ancient history, um, and he's also frustrated that people write this sort of ghetto porn, you know, essentially like exaggerated stories about people you know, being, you know, illiterate and violent and dealing drugs and getting shot by the police. And that's literally, you know, everyone loves that and says, it's, oh, that's authentic. It's the real black experience. He goes, well, that's not my black experience. And it's exploitative dog shit. Why, do, why does that sell in its millions and no one buys my books? So he goes and writes uh, the ultimate kind of parody of that kind of fiction and sends it out and everybody takes it seriously and it sells an absolute fortune. It makes more money. You know, he's, he's getting offered millions for the film rights and, and he's frustrated by it. Now I knew all that part of the storyline. I was well on board with it and I really enjoyed that, but I got a big surprise from this film as well, because what this film also talks about is Jeffrey Wright's main character, Thelonious Ellison, because Thelonious is the name of a jazz musician, Thelonious Monk. His nickname is Monk throughout the film. So I'll call him Monk. Monk's family life, is as big a part of the story as his writing career because his mum's uh, starting to feel the effects of dementia. He, he, he reconnects with his sister after a long time, but she's got health problems. Um, he reconnects with his brother after a long time, still came Brown, who's divorced and he's divorced because he's gay and had been in closet all this time. And now he's kind of wants to live life as who he is. And he's a really buttoned-up character. He's not got a problem with his brother being gay. He's not got a problem with any of this other stuff. He's just, he finds it very difficult to connect with people. It's just who he is. And it's really terrific. It's a really terrific portrait of of, of his of his family, which I, I actually, despite the fact that they have all their problems, I really enjoyed spending time with them. And, and I, I wasn't expecting the thing to be quite as nuanced and balanced as it was, because his character is quite subtle. 
Um, and the satire of the film industry stuff is brilliant. I mean, basically, he, he's in this bit where he gets invited to a restaurant. He's got to poke. He's written this under a pseudonym. He's pretending that he's a real guy from the ghetto, and he's he's not giving his real name because he's a fugitive. And everyone, all the all the white pub publishers, go nuts. Go, oh, that's so exciting! He's a real criminal writing a real criminal novel, and he's got to go to um, a, a, a restaurant to have a meeting with a guy from Hollywood about the film rights, but pretend to be his his street thug alter ego. And he turns up looking about as street as as, as your granny, right? But he's, <laughs> but he's trying really hard to sound really sort of gruff and tough and streetwise. And in his best gangster voice, he, uh, he, he, he asks the waiter for their driest Shannon Blanc. And I was laughing out loud because Jeffrey Wright is absolutely lovely that. But the rest is, it, it's a really well-crafted, real world film but and the satire i think works even better because it feels like the whole thing comes from the real world um i thought this was really well done the cast is terrific sterling k brown uh, tracy Ellis ross is the sister um uh issa ray who was uh, madam president barbie is the the author of the um the exploitative ghetto fiction um which pisses Jeffrey Wright's character off but when he meets her she's actually quite a cool person and he's he doesn't like the fact that he actually agrees with her on a lot of stuff and it's Erica Alexander as, as the as the girl who gets involved really really good movie really fucking well done every year one of these films that gets in towards the end of the previous year for the American Oscars and gets released early in in the in the, the following calendar year here in the UK becomes my core celebrity for the rest of the year like you know Babylon was like uh, Licorice Pizza was. This year, it's going to be American fiction. I absolutely fucking love this. This was tremendous. It's such such a good good, film. and I I just really enjoyed it. It's really nice. Um, you know the the stuff with this family felt really real, and then the satire was. They could have gone a lot more broad with the satire and really sort of. And there are some fantastic moments. The way the kind of satirical side is, is plays out at the end. I was I think I embarrassed myself laughing so loudly in front of the rest of the audience. But the whole thing just felt really beautifully realised. This is a and, and this is a directorial debut. This guy called Jefferson. This is his first movie. That's a fucking good debut, by the way. This is a really, really good movie, and I I enjoyed every minute. So thank you for the recommendation, mate. And I I thoroughly recommend it to everybody everybody else. Great stuff. Um, I just wanted to do a, a brief mention. You remember we talked about the films we wished we'd seen that you know we hadn't got around to seeing from the um. Uh, from last year's one of our that's one of our little quirky award categories on on, on the double awards i i was split between anatomy of a fall and polite society um and i went for polite society because that is actually out and available to watch so i, I decided to just get around to watching that and that was really good um a lot of people talked about it um it's directed by nita mansour who's british asian she's done a lot of tv work like i think she did some stuff on orange is the new black this is her film debut um, starring a, a young actress called Priya Kansara, who I'd not seen before, and a, like Geeta from EastEnders, and a, like, various other British actors that I've seen and other things pop up in it. And they, they people were referring to everything, everywhere, all at once when they were talking about this film because it's because um, it sort of mixes genres together. But I think that's a bit bit misleading. I think a much better reference point is is Hot Fuzz, and the reason for that is that in Hot Fuzz you've basically got the people in the movie and and you know and the director and writer of the film are big fans of these genre films in that in that case action films and all of their tropes and they decide it would be really fun to take those tropes and apply them to a very unusual setting in that case like a sleepy english village 
like a cop movie where like bad boys or point break for everyone shooting the hell out of each other, but it's a quiet English village. Well, this film, Nida Mansour is clearly a big fan of like fucking all the same movies as me, martial arts, heist films, all of this stuff. And she just plays it out over an Asian wedding. And it's, it's really fun. It's just really great fun to actually, because what you get is you get the storyline of like the Asian girl, her sister's getting married and she feels like it's not a good match. She feels like her sister's kind of given up her own ambition. So you want to do something about it. Now you could do a serious drama version of that, or you could do like a comedy drama version of that. She's done a full on action martial arts heist movie about that. And I am so on board for that. It's just really, really well done. Priya Kansara is the main girl. She's good at she's good at the martial arts, but there's this bit where she's trying to do this um <clears throat> 360 degree roundhouse kick like her like her hero Eunice Hathart, who's a British she appeared on Gladiators and then became Angela Angelina Jolie's stunt double, and she's her complete hero. She wants to be a stunt woman, and she's trying to do this kick, and she's quite good at martial arts, but she keeps trying to do too much and biting off more than she can chew. And early on in the film, you see her try and do this roundhouse kick for her her um her youtube video and absolutely dies on her ass trying to do it and i just thought i'm on board i love you i love everyone in this film let's do it um it's absolute great fun because it's got a genuine love of those um of those films but then it makes a, a, a what could have been a perfectly fine family drama or family comedy drama about an asian wedding it makes it into the one of the most exciting films i've seen in a long time so hot fuzz fucking an Asian wedding I can't recommend it higher than that it was absolutely tremendous such great fun um, one of, and the other thing is Priya Kansara she's got a big future she's got the funniest serious face I've ever seen in a long time every time her character started taking things really seriously and looking into the camera and about how serious she's taking it she just made me laugh out loud every time she did it these people are really fucking good and I, I want to see Neither Mansour do something else because this was great fun I had a smile on my face all the way through absolutely top stuff i think it's on if you've got sky cinema subscription it's available on there and it's just a really good fun time uh for anyone who loves that kind of movie that's me those are the films i watched this this month lovely Now we come to our resolutions. Now, you will, uh, readers will recall, listeners will recall that I kicked off my resolutions last month with the first of a 12 part project where I look at films by women directors with no other purpose than to say, I'd like to see more films by women directors. Uh, it'll take me into genres that I maybe don't normally watch. Um, and, and that, you know, I started out with Coda, which I quite enjoyed. Uh, and I'm doing another one this month. James, you made an announcement last month about um, your project, but you said you wanted to kind of do some time and craft it, and you would come back with an approach to your 12 Christopher Nolan films. You'd work out what order you were going to do them in and do two this month. Do do you want to kick that off and tell me what you're going to do with Christopher Nolan? First of all, do you have a name for the project yet? I couldn't think of a funny pun. That will which is annoying. We'll work on that. Don't you worry. We'll work on that. What's your so what's the what's your angle? How how are you taking these films? So I didn't want to do it just based on IMDb rating because there's you know, if I watch you know what were the twelve I was gonna watch again? One, two, three, four. It's basically all of his basically all of his films that have come out, really. Ten, eleven, twelve. So it goes from the following or just following to Oppenheimer. 
Now, if, yeah. you, if you start with his lowest rated one, you start on Insomnia, and then you go following, and then I think it's like Tenet, then Dunkirk. But I didn't do that, so I basically just kind of was scrolling through, and he thought, you know what, I'll just start on one and go from there. So the first one was Dunkirk for January, and the second one was um, The Dark Knight Rises for February. So you just decided to kind of pull them and do them, yeah? Yeah, I thought rather than just, you know, put them in an order or put them in the order that I think I'll enjoy them the most or, you know, the general consensus on what's his best, I thought, Bosch, I'll just go for um, Tenet and The Dark Knight Rises. Sorry, Dunkirk and Dark Knight Rises. Dunkirk and Dark Knight Rises. Sorry, I was reading Tenet there. Okay. Um, Dunkirk and Dark Knight Rises. So Dunkirk so, for January. So um, so be, before we start this, what, what was your thought on Dark Knight Rises when it came out? Were you disappointed with how it ended compared to Dark Knight? Were, were, you, were you happy enough with how he rounded off the trilogy? Where, where were you originally on the Dark Knight Rises before you before you rewatch it and, and tell us what you think now? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. It's not as strong as the Dark Knight, obviously, because no, there, there are barely any films that are as strong as the dark knight even 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 the, the best even the best trilogy is going to have a film which is slightly weaker than the mm-hmm. other two right um i don't th- i wouldn't say it's necessarily weak i think it goes the dark knight is the best one then batman begins is second and then dark knight rises is third but that doesn't but, but, mean but, you, but you were the but, worst. but you still finished up satisfied yeah i really enjoyed it i think and, it's and, when and, we first start, we first start to see the issues with christopher nolan and audio right um, yeah. because bane's very hard to kind of pick up on yeah um, and you kind of lose some of the kind of the impact of Bane, who I still think is a very strong villain. I think he's much stronger than Ra's al Ghul, and obviously not as good as the Joker. Yeah. Um, but very strong villain, very imposing, very kind of threatening. I think that's the most interesting mm-hmm. one. Like you never felt like the Joker was a threat mm-hmm. to Batman, and the same with Ra's al Ghul because you know Ra's al Ghul was a sort of like a kind of old man, obviously a trained kind of assassin, you know, martial arts expert, but. Bane was the first time he thought Batman is broken and Bane will absolutely, you know, destroy him. So I, th- I thought it was a really strong villain. Um, I liked the ending, the kind of ambiguity of it, the kind of desperation and just, yeah, I, re- I really like the whole story. It's it's hard to end, it's hard to end a trilogy that you never intended on making. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. But, but you, so, it, so when you're rewatching it now, you, you know, it, I was just trying to set it in context. You were perfectly happy with Dark Knight Rises last time. Dunkirk, on the other hand, you didn't like. No, you haven't liked. Shit. And now you're sitting. Now you're going back to watch it again. Did no, did you still, did your no, mind change on it at no, all? It's still terrible. It's oh, well, an awful film. Okay, well, Dunkirk's your January entry. Walk, walk me through Dunkirk. Uh, well, we had these problems when we went to see. We went to see it both together, which is. Uh, quite a rare occurrence given our geographic location. So when we go to commit to see a film, that is a big occasion. So I don't know if that's kind of pissed me off more about this film. Yeah, because we, we, we booked at the IMAX. We, we had a bit of dinner IMAX first. In London, we went out for a bit of food and we were really excited. It was a lovely summer's day and we thought, yep, we are going to go see a Christopher Nolan film at the IMAX on the bi- literally the biggest screen in the fucking country. Mm-hmm. And we thought, great. And the scale of Dunkirk is not captured and the the whole day was a pretty much a waste of time. We could have waited for it to come out on DVD and just seen it on a telly because there was no point in trying to appreciate the scale of Dunkirk um, or the actual event of Dunkirk through this film because Nolan insisted on only using actual Spitfires and not using CGI, which is fine, I guess, because you have every right to decide how you portray your film. But I think what I take issue with is that it wasn't like... 
the scale of it was completely lost. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember having exactly the same disappointment about that as you. Um, and there's a film called Atonement, which on the whole is not very good. It's a very classic kind of uh, a bit uninspiring, supposedly prestige, you know, Brit British historical drama based on like a, a book. And it's it's not doesn't it doesn't grab me at all on the whole Atonement. But there is a scene where you look across the beach with at Dunkirk with all of the soldiers just piled on there in their hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands waiting for a boat to get home and you really get into the scale and there is not one moment I felt in Dunkirk which got across that scale there was like a quarter of a million British soldiers on that beach and I don't think it ever felt like that at, at, at any point in Nolan's film which I think is a real shame and a real letdown yeah um what what about the what about the three timelines and the the performances in that? How how do they come across this time? So the, the what performances? Sorry, Tom Hardy and well, yeah, you've Mark got Rylance and and that you've ba you, you've basically got you've got the timeline where you've got like sort of a few different groups, haven't you? Because you Kenneth Branagh and his officers trying to get the boys off the off the beach. You've got Mark Rylance on the on the boat coming across the water with his son, and he picks up Killian Murphy. You've got Tom Hardy and Jack Loudon as the pilots, and then you've got the um, you've got the soldiers on the beach. And I remember you had some issues with some of the different performances across that. How did that all come across this time? Uh, yeah, still the same kind of underwhelming kind of nature of it all. Um, I didn't like how it felt like all of the soldiers didn't really have a kind of name. Like, obviously, you can't focus on 400,000 soldiers on the beach, so you're going to have to focus on a couple of them, but I couldn't tell you the name of any of the characters in it. The what, what still drives me fucking mental to this day is that out of all the characters that you follow, the only person to die is a civilian on a boat because he falls down and hits his fucking head. That will piss me off till, like, forever. That's so fucking daft. I found it insulting because there were obviously a lot of people that died and were captured at Dunkirk. And the only person that we see on screen that is given any notable kind of death is a civilian that gets, you know, it's a, it's, it's an it's an accident. Yeah, I was just looking that up. There were um, overall in the Battle of Dunkirk, there were three and a half thousand British British casualties. Uh, a thousand were killed. You know, once they actually got stuck on the beach, sixteen thousand French casualties. It just feel you're right. It does feel weird. The whole thing felt a little bit bloodless, didn't it? Yeah, and I don't want to sound morbid because obviously you don't want to be saying, oh yeah, I want to see all these people die, but it was a tragic event. And that was one of my criticisms of, Oppen of Oppenheimer was that the it, it shows the kind of horror going on in Oppenheimer's mind, but at the end of the day, between Hiroshima and Nagasaki, hundreds of thousands of people were, were killed. Yeah, I, th I think, so, yeah, I think, but I think Nolan's choice because of the 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 point of view focus of the film is more defensible in Oppenheimer because you you can film that entirely from Oppenheimer's point of view, but you're filming Dunkirk from the point of view of the soldiers on the beach, and it's weird to not have any casualties in that setting, isn't it? Yeah. So for me, it, it just lacked any kind of substance, any kind of threat, any anything like that. I just it, it really irritated me, and yeah. I've I've not watched it again since we went to watch it in the cinema. It's the only Christopher Nolan film I've not rewatched. 
I may go back and rewatch it now just to see if I think any differently about it. But I mean, you you just had everything you thought about the film originally confirmed, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm just. I'm just gonna sound like a broken record. But if you're gonna do a film about Dunkirk, the Dunkirk is one of the most. It's tragic because people passed away and were killed, but it's also one of the biggest miracles in military history to get three hundred and what was it three hundred and forty thousand people evacuated from a beach using mm-hmm. civilian boats mm-hmm. and you just don't get the scale of it at all you see it you see a few kind of sailboats show up at the end and it's like oh yeah brilliant Woo. yeah nonsense absolute nonsense of a film a real letdown yeah i so i mean my, my thoughts on it are i think there's a similar period that hitchcock went through i know we often compare um uh Nolan to uh, to Kubrick more than um, uh, than Hitchcock. He is his own man, obviously. But the thing with Hitchcock is that Hitchcock went through this decade of experimentation, and that during that decade he did films like Lifeboat, where everything's all in one setting. He does Rope, where everything's one take. He, d- he does a number of these films where he's almost using them as an opportunity to try out things that he wants to do. And I get the feeling that for you, you went through a period where Nolan frustrated you because he's experimenting with like narrative and sound and 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 you know not wanting to do frankly do anything with CGI. But he comes back with Oppenheimer, and it's almost like he did some stuff with Dunkirk, which didn't work as a movie, but probably what he learned making all of his other films made Oppenheimer possible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I didn't think Dunkirk worked. I mean, maybe I, I should watch it. But I, I remember watching the trailer, but the trailer implied that we would see Dunkirk. And like the main thing is just that number, 330,000 soldiers. And I, it never looks like there's more than about 200 on the beach in, uh, in Nolan's version. And I just think there's a time and a place for a bit of CGI to enhance what you're doing, which Ridley Scott perfected in, in 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 gladiator and i still think he did a fantastic job of it in in uh in napoleon because whatever you think in napoleon no one can fault the the crowd scenes and the scale of the battles and everything else that he did and 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 ridley scott doesn't make films that are dripping in cgi he uses cgi to provide scale where it's not possible now if no, if nolan wants to put three hundred and thirty thousand extras on a beach yeah and not use CGI, that's cool for me. But trying to make 200 people look like Dunkirk, not good enough, is it? No, it's insulting. But yeah, that was that was the first couple of entries. Okay. Um, I mean, it, what, what more... I mean, have you got any more thoughts on The Dark Knight Rises? I mean, I think we covered it there. I mean, it's like... the. I remember something Nolan said when he was bringing out The Dark Knight Rises. He says, that you, um, you've got to have an ending. Because if you've got an ending to work towards, every, you, can, you can work... You can work your way around everything else on the way. And the ending of Dark Knight Rises is very strong, isn't it? I mean, spoilers, yeah. it's, it's an older film, but Batman takes the bomb, takes it out to sea, everyone cheers, and then that's that brilliant look on um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face where he cheers and then he goes, oh, shit, I know what that means. Do you know what I mean? Batman's just killed himself for us. And and his his, his celebration is like just really lovely performance by Joseph Gordon-Levitt because his celebration is cut off you know in a split second where he goes oh shit he's dead and then there's that whole thing did he did he do the autopilot and everything else where do you land on that do you do you think because nolan's films often don't leave a lot to interpretation he actually ex- explains most things in his films and that's fine you know not everyone has not everything has to be explained or everything has to be unexplained it's you know dealer's choice 
But there's this interpretation, you know, at the end of Inception, is he dreaming, is he not? And the other big debate about Nolan's endings of films is at the end there, when Michael Caine sees Christian Bale and Anne Hathaway across the table and waves a glass to them, is he imagining that? Or does or does Bruce Wayne really get away at the end? What, what, where do you land when you watch that movie? Um, I think they try and make it quite explicit that the autopilot was fixed. Mm-hmm. Because they wouldn't say that if they weren't trying to set up the ending that Batman did actually get away and Bruce Wayne's now mm-hmm. just kind of retired and just enjoying his billions, which mm-hmm. I think is the story that they were trying to tell and everyone kind of gets that kind of satisfying happy ending where Alfred mm-hmm. can no- Alfred can also retire as well and he's an old man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the ending they're trying to go for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I start. It's not as ambiguous as, say, Inception because that ending is very much... That's beautifully um, ambiguous. I think, it, I think it's not very ambiguous. I think it's kind of... Oh fuck! Batman's dead, and then when uh, Lucius Fox is investigating the the kind of is it the Batwing? They go, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you fixed the autopilot six months ago. So when you see him in Florence in the cafe, yeah, he he is fine. So yeah, I think it's it's a good ending. Um, yeah, and the rest and- of the story, it's got kind of stronger, stronger and weaker moments. The bit, the opening bit with the plane is very good. I do think the story kind of lulls um, mm-hmm. in places. Um, but it's nice to see Gotham kind of descend into absolute chaos. You get you get very much the Reign of Terror kind mm-hmm. of vibes, like Scarecrow kind of mimicking um, Robespierre in mm-hmm. that kind of kangaroo court. Is that the right mm-hmm. expression for it? Yeah. Like a kind of, yeah. Um, and then making people walk on the, the frozen river. There's good moments. There's, there's kind of lulls. It's a bit ridiculous. The Batman's back is fixed by a guy putting him on a rope mm-hmm. in, um, mm-hmm. in a dingy kind of Middle Eastern prison, but it's not it's not terrible and i think you were always going to struggle to make a, a superb film after the expectation of the dark knight and i think it does okay in kind of wrapping things up yeah it's it's tying. it's a dramatically satisfying arc isn't it so you kind of have to forgive some plot holes like the tom conti with a rope fixing a spinal injury um the fact that the entire um uh, Gotham police force just live underground for however many months <laughs> before they're let out again, and then they just pop back out and march on, march on Bane. It's like okay, um, it's you know, and and someone just did a really funny sort of twin picture about you know plot holes in um, in Dark Knight Rises. It's got a picture of Christian Bailey at the end uh, at the table in Florence, uh, toasting, you know, toasting with his glass. Uh, and then it just cuts to a picture of uh, Bruce Wayne on the cover of Time magazine, saying, "Okay, come on, how does he? How does no one talk? How does how's that? Bruce Wayne is alive, not a story on on the news somewhere. Do you know what I mean? But I think you forgive it because that's a really satisfying ending. I think the trilogy sort of sort of finishes nicely, doesn't it? Do you do you think um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character John, although his real first name's Robin, what's his what's his name in it? John, whatever." Do you, do you think he goes on to be the new Batman do you th- or, or a new vigilante? Is that what we're supposed to imply at the end? Um, I don't know. I think it's more of a case of he's going to kind of take over more from Commissioner Gordon mm-hmm. um, and yeah. just kind of be a good cop. I don't think he's going to be the, doing the, anything. The, 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 f- the fight goes on. No matter, w- w- financially, yeah. he couldn't do it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. But it's more kind of like, oh, Robin, Robin's a good guy, kind of. That's what I mm-hmm. took from it. Maybe it yeah. is, yes, he will be the new vigilante, but... Mm-hmm. Um, if he was, I mean, f- put it another way, uh, the the ad- no one wants to see Batman and Robin again. Uh, that's just from another era. But in, in, in the comics, adult um, Robin goes on to become Nightwing. Would, would you have... 
Would you have watched a spin-off with uh, just Joseph Gordon-Levitt no, as Nightwing? I don't like any idea of spin-offs from Christopher Nolan films at all. Fair enough. All right. Well, okay. Well, listen, we're up and running. You're doing Christopher Nolan. We'll we'll, we'll come up with a title. We'll do something on that. But uh, for now, it's the Nolan Project. Uh, we're up to date on that. You've done two. Uh, two. You, you, that takes you through to February. Let me do my resolution now. Um, as I said, I'm doing uh, women directors. I mean, I watch films of women directors. I just talked about a film by Nita Mansour. We talked about Greta Gerwig and Barbie. It's not like we don't watch films by, by women directors. I think I'm just a little bit conscious because of my tendency to watch um, a lot of genre movies and the fact that women are a minority among directors anyway. There are some really good films by female directors I've just not watched. For a range of reasons, as we go through the year, you'll see why I've not watched some films versus others. I just thought, Let, let's do that. Let's just showcase women directors. They, they're not, but these are all just separate directors in their own right making their movies. So it's really just a journey through 12 films that I haven't seen that I'd now like to. Um, last month I did Coda, and this month I'm doing Selma. Now, as we discussed, the only real issue I had with, with Selma, it was two things, really. One is I wasn't sure if I would like a, a film about Martin Luther King where you don't get the actual Martin Luther King speeches. That feels like when they had tried to do a Jimi Hendrix film without Jimi Hendrix's music in it. Do you know what I mean? It feels like, are we missing something here, you know? And the other bit that I was a little bit concerned about, I'm a bit cautious about any biopic featuring Martin Luther King. It's like, if you just do one of those standard kind of solid historical biopics where the main character is this famous person who did some, you know, important things... Martin Luther King's got such a complex legacy and such an important legacy, and he his name gets taken in vain by a bunch of people. You even get some of the right-wing obvious racists who watch Fox News quoting Martin Luther King as if he would agree with them about the state of race relations in America today. It's so bizarre. There's also this thing of he was one thing, Mar Malcolm X was another. You know, they were different people. There's also this element of he was this saintly figure, and, and, and we know that his personal life was different to that. Everyone also forgets that Martin Luther King was going very socialist before he died. And you know, he was making speeches about, you know, the the problem. He's obviously fighting racism because uh, because racism is holding back um, black people. But it's actually about the rights that they don't have that they should have and the inequality that's affecting their lives. And if you really want to do something about people's rights and about inequality, you have to change the American system. And if anything that Martin Luther King has said has been proved right, it's that. That's been proved like a fucking million times since his death in 1968, that the American system of vampire capitalism is fucking evil and holding back that whole country. And Martin Luther King was saying, we've got to fix everything. We've got to change this because you've got a bunch of white people who are as poor as dirt and being told to blame black people for it. That's not going to go away until those people stop being forced to live in shit, right? Black people are being forced to live in shit. We've got to change things. And he said, we should... You know, he was he was going socialist. And there's a parallel universe where Martin Luther King doesn't get killed and Robert Kennedy doesn't, doesn't get killed. And the 1960s and 70s of America look very fucking different with him leading the charge and, 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 and the, the good Kennedy, the better Kennedy brother as president, right? We didn't get that. And I was, I've gone on a bit of a rant there, but I just think doing a typical biopic about, oh, Martin Luther King did this thing and isn't it nice and let's have a song from John Legend at the end. I did sort of think... Is this a cop-out? Is this whole movie a cop-out? But 
look, that's not for me to say. This is a bunch of black Americans making a movie about a black American. It's entirely up to them to make that movie. I, I'm just explaining why I didn't go out and watch it on its first weekend. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, uh, I did sit down to watch this. Uh, it's directed by Ava DuVernay, who is a, a, a fairly well-regarded um, uh, uh, black American filmmaker. She, uh, she did a film at Wrinkle in Time, which didn't do very well, but it sounds really interesting. It just didn't, didn't work. Uh, this son was very well-regarded. She's got a new film coming out, which seems very ambitious. It's called Origin. Um, I'm not quite sure how that one's going to work, but she's she's really swinging with it, like she's really going for it with a, a really ambitious, complex movie. So she's definitely in the conversation as one of these strong, interesting filmmakers who wants to make stuff that, that makes you think. Um, so I sat down to watch this. Have you, have you seen Selma? No, I haven't. I, I watched it, and and actually, I, I thought it I thought it was very good. Um, as far as it went, because it focuses on a specific part of, of Martin Luther King's life and campaign, which is in Selma, Alabama, he he, he got involved in the fact that there were um, horrific voter suppression uh, restrictions stopping black people even from voting at all. Like 1% of black people in Alabama were, were actually getting to vote. It's an absolute disgrace by your usual racist white fucking assholes that the story kicks off with the Birmingham, Alabama bombing where four black girls were, were just just obliterated by the KKK bombing a church. And it, it's, these are, these are atrocities. This is like, this is like terrorism, you know? And Martin Luther King leads them or organizes a march from Selma, Alabama, which is the center of a lot of the controversy to Montgomery, Alabama, uh, the state capital to campaign for black people to actually get the right to vote. He puts pressure on Lyndon B. Johnson to legislate at the federal level. Um, th this film's really interesting, despite some very weird and I don't think honest criticism when it came out. This film is actually rated among the most historically accurate films of its type ever done. There's a, a, it, a the the independent newspaper in the UK sort of rated this 100% historically accurate. The Guardian has a used to do an article. They don't do it anymore. This 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 uh, historian called Alex von Kunzelman who actually will go through each film and go, did that happen? Did it happen the way they said it did? Have they merged characters? And it says this is absolutely spot on historically accurate. So it's really good. It, it demonstrates the power of. Um, uh, Martin Luther King's nonviolent protest on the basis that you could pick up a gun and turn on these guys, but these are this is the whole whole apparatus of the state of Alabama and all the guns and all the bombs and helicopters. They'll kill you. They'll kill you in your thousands. But if you march and don't stop marching and don't stop campaigning, you're you know we're scaring the life out of them. Keep doing it. It shows the power of what Martin Luther King was doing. It's a really good performance by David Yellow as Martin Luther King. Also a very good performance by Tom Wilkinson as Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, just do doing what Tom Wilkinson always does, which is absolutely top quality performance that completely serves the character in the film. Lyndon B. Johnson is much more of a pragmatist. He's trying to get things done. Martin Luther King's a pain in his ass because he's trying to get some other things changed. The Civil Rights Act, a voting rights bill is going to be really difficult to get through and Martin Luther King is constantly badgering him to do it. He he lets the FBI do what they want to do, which is to tap his phone and harass him and harass his family, which is what they do. J. Edgar Hoover appears being the absolute arsehole we know he is. Um, look, it's a good cast. 
Carmen Ajogo, Wendell Pierce from The Wire, Keith Stanfield in an early role, Tim Roth, Cuba Gooding, Oprah Winfrey, Jeremy Strong, Tom Wilkinson, as I mentioned. So it's all the things you normally expect from one of these biopics. Everyone wants to be in it because it's an important story. David Yellowo is a terrific actor who absolutely gets hold of the role of Martin Luther King and does a good job. It doesn't shy away from the fact that Martin Luther King was having affairs and his wife confronted him about it. The, the description of him in that, that a Guardian historian said he's portrayed as a hero but not a saint, and I thought that's pretty decent. It shies away from any of the real kind of political, economic, you know, ideological parts of Martin Luther King. It is very much just a civil rights story, but it's very good. It's, you know, the, the bombing at the start is particularly shocking because there's just these girls walking down the stairs chatting to each other, just like ordinary schoolgirls having a chat, talking about, oh, how, you know, what, what dresses they like best or something. Just what little girls talk about every day and then they just get fucking blown up by, by, a, by a massive bomb because the KKK is in town. And they do it. Ava DuVernay does a really nice, solid overall job of the film, but she also does a really good job of just creating an atmosphere that, God, these these white supremacists are actually going to kill them, you know, and people get murdered on the way. I think the biggest flaw of the film is um, that the ending's a bit of an anticlimax because because of the amount of pressure that's that everyone's under, the, the nation is watching when. The, the state police start smashing up the, uh, they call it Bloody Sunday over there. They absolutely, they sent in the troop. They're bullwhipping black people in the street and running them down with horses. And at the end of the film, Linda B. Johnson is so pressured by this that he, you know, he makes a phone call and they pass the Voting Rights Act. And by the time Martin Luther King is has is, is finished his march, they already know that um, Linda B. Johnson has agreed to, he's going to make the changes. So in, in the story, there's a it, it's a bit of an actual anticlimax. You get a good speech at the end from Martin Luther King, but it doesn't. F- some of the events in the build-up are so dramatic and so forceful and so gripping that the end feels a bit of an anticlimax. Now, if I'm going to praise a film for being historically accurate, and that's what happened, you know, you shouldn't criti- criticize too much for that. But I think they could have made, you know, the, the end result of this was that millions of black people started to vote who didn't vote, and I thought that would have been a nice ending to the film. Can you just imagine like scene after scene after scene of just black people putting a cross in a box, you know? The fact that all those people died, but now finally people can get the rights that they deserve and you see all the changes. I think there could have been a bit more of a flourish at the end to kind of really get across the fact that the um, this was a big change. It's, it's another one of those cases, a little bit like Judas and the Black Messiah, but maybe not quite as, 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 as bad as that. Not bad, but not quite as, as much as that that the story is so powerful and the film just about gets it across rather than having it putting enough sort of having enough power of its own a very solid piece of work Eva DuVernay shows herself to be a very decent director doing it I don't think it's it's kind of standard biopic fare it's well made it's passionately made by people who very much believe in it you know you're 100% on the side of Martin Luther King why wouldn't you be um, there's an interesting little cameo by Malcolm X who who quite wisely because he was a smart guy smart operator he turns up in, in in Alabama and starts making speeches and and Martin Luther King's wife says what the hell are you doing and he says to her look if they think I'm coming down they'll do a deal with your husband <laughs> because they hate me do you know what I mean and I thought that's that was, some of that was pretty good a decent piece of work a decent um, historical biopic that does a nice job all round and shows David DuVernay who as someone who can be trusted with a big story decent work by everybody um, uh, 
you know, but I, I think the kind of stylistic flourishes that Spike Lee used in at the end of Black Klansman, that's not her style, obviously, and not not everyone should be like Spike Lee. But something like that would have been a better ending, but 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 very decent all round. And as the uh, and as the listener said, it's interesting that this film features the Bayard Rustin because he was a close advisor to Martin Luther King, and the story of him being sidelined for being gay has just come out in cinema. So it's an interesting time to watch it. Um, that's you know that's my women directors uh, entry for this month. Um, I you know I'm just going to continue watching films in a in a in a in a sort of order. Um, next month it's going to be. Let me consult my list because I don't know this off by heart. I'm going to look at Nomadland, um, directed by Chloe Zhao, which won best best director and and best picture when it came out in 2020. But uh, for now, that's my uh, women directors entry for this month. But I always do an impromptu top 10 somehow connected to the film. This is a fairly simple one. This is uh, top 10 films named after cities, um, which is going to give you a very varied list. Uh, there are many, there are the hundreds and hundreds of films you know, with, with, with cities in the name. This is just 10 that I like. LA Confidential, Escape from New York, Nashville, Atlantic City, An American Werewolf in London, Train to Busan, Casablanca, In Bruges, Munich, and Our Man in Havana. Um, very, very diverse range of films there. But yeah, um, I'm glad I finally got around to watching Selma. Um, that was a decent film. Any other thoughts for, for that or for for the Double Monthly before we finish, mate? No, I don't think so. Very good. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The latest Penalty Shootout film quiz will be released shortly. Next week we'll be back with our regular features with themes of films about television. First up will be our Classics and Recommended feature where we finally get around to watching the 70s satire network, then our hidden gem where we tell you why you should get around to watching Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. In The One That Got Away we'll tell you about Jacques Tati's Confusion, and in the remake Hate Watch we'll look at the 21st century update of the TV series Bewitched. Then a week after that, our big conversation episode will discuss our top 10 films of the 2010s. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime. See you on the other side.